son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Well, they tell me that the key to writing a great book is a riveting introduction um, that catches your attention and spellbinds you and makes you turn page after page and never put it down. Matthew, however, did not get the message, and he begins his story of the life of Jesus with one of what appears to be the most boring introductions of all great literature. Uh, He starts with the genealogy of Jesus and with a whole lot of names that nobody can pronounce. And Austin did a tremendous job. And the the rule of thumb, by the way, if you're ever asked to read Old Testament names, is you act like you know what they sound like. Because no one in the room knows either. So you just fake it. And Austin did a great job doing that. But if we look at Matthew's... uh, Genealogy more closely. I remember Sandy and I in seminary took a course on Matthew, and one night Dr. Bing Hunter was was unfolding all this. And I I remember driving home, and we both looked at each other and said, I had no idea all that was in that genealogy. There is a method to his madness, and I want to look at it a little bit with you tonight. Um, Matthew is trying to teach something to his audience, and he he chooses to start this way for a reason. Matthew is writing to Jewish 
Christians, uh, about a generation after uh, Jesus. And one of the great burning questions uh, for the church at that time, because the the first believers were all Jewish, was, uh, I want to hold on to my Judaism, I want to embrace this Jesus, but can can you do both? Can you embrace Jesus and still be Jewish? And so... Matthew essentially writes this gospel to say, yes, that you can. Now, any devout Jew who had ever stayed awake uh, in synagogue would have known that the God of Israel had promised to Abraham and to David to bless the world through their offspring. Genesis 12, 1-3, God promises Abraham that he's going to bless all the families of the world through his offspring. And then 2 Samuel 7, God promises David, one of Abraham's descendants, that one of David's sons will always be the king of Israel. And so Matthew begins his gospel by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, Matthew wants to show his Jewish readers that Jesus is indeed the descendant of David and Abraham. Uh, Genealogical lists were very treasured in in Matthew's day, very important way to establish your identity, and so that's where Matthew begins. Now, he breaks Jesus' family tree down into three groups of 14 and organizes it loosely around the rise and fall and rise of Israel. He begins the first three uh, with Abraham, ending in David. The second section begins with David and ends with the Babylonian exile. That was the low point. And the final section begins at the exile and ends with Joseph and Mary. That was the high point. And Matthew concludes, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14, from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14. Now, why does he add that? Well, because his more sophisticated readers, uh, who had perhaps studied Torah in synagogue, would have understood that one of the things that uh, the teachers of the day in the synagogue would do was use numbers uh, to to, to commute symbolic meaning. And every letter of the Hebrew alphabet uh, has a number attached to it. The Hebrew name David, which in, in Hebrew just has three Letters, not five, there are no vowels in, in Hebrew, uh, has numbers attached to it. And when you add up the numbers for the three Hebrew letters that make up the name David, they add up to 14. And so uh, a Jewish reader reading this would see some symbolism in that. And he would understand Matthew to be saying, and the way he's organized this is, is, is that. Jesus is the son of David. 14 would say David. 14 would say David. 14 would say David. Now, uh, there's another symbolism going on in here. Uh, Seven was uh, a holy number, a sacred number. It represented perfection and fulfillment. Three fourteens are six sevens with the coming of of Christ. Uh, With the coming of, of Christ... We have the seventh seven, the perfect fulfillment. And so Matthew is saying that all the promises of Israel are coming to fulfillment 
in Christ. He's making a theological statement with his genealogy. He's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and David. But there's more. Uh, in the Greek, the opening words are Biblos Genesis or Genesis. And if you were uh, translating very literally, you could translate the first line of Matthew from the Greek, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew never tires of showing how the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And so one of the things he was saying here is that I'm going to talk to you about a new Genesis, a new book of Genesis, a new book of creations, a new book of beginnings that has their focus, Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you a story now about how Christ is renewing and regenerating the world. Now, Matthew uh, continues to drop some more gospel hints in the genealogy. And perhaps the most surprising one is who he includes. Matthew includes some scandalous names in his lists of Jesus' grandparents. Uh, and, and if you would have read this in, in the first century, if a, a group of uh, particularly folks who were familiar with the Old Testament and, uh, and they were gathering and they heard this read, there would have been gasps. There would have been the shaking of heads. There might even have been the storming out of the room. Now Why? It's because Matthew includes four women in his genealogy. Four women with uh, some stories that are a little bit scandalous, or a lot of it scandalous. And this would not normally have occurred in a first century genealogy. You would not put women there. And if you did put women there, you'd put other women there. You'd put Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But that's not what Matthew does. And he's trying to preach the gospel by including these four women in the genealogy. The first woman he mentions is Tamar. Uh, her story is safely tucked away in Genesis 38. Tamar is a Canaanite. In other words, she's from another race. Um, two husbands treat Tamar very wickedly. According to the custom, I think we would say they abused her. According to the custom of the day, Judah, uh, Tamar's father-in-law, was supposed to give her his son uh, as a husband so that she could conceive children and the line could be carried on. Judah never does that. Tamar comes up with a plan. Uh, she dresses up as a, as a prostitute. She waits by uh, a road where she knows Judah will be coming by. Sure enough, Judah comes by, sees his daughter-in-law, who he doesn't see as his daughter-in-law, and uh, asks if he can have sex with her. She says, sure, if you give me your ring. He gives her the ring. He has sex with her. She conceives. He finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. He says, I can't believe you're pregnant. It's a terrible thing. She pulls out the ring and says, well, guess who did it? And he says, you're better than me. And she gives birth to one of the great-grandparents of Jesus. So that was the first story that pops up. The second name that would have shocked first century Jewish readers is, is Rahab. Uh, Rahab makes an appearance in the second chapter of the book of, of Joshua. She's also a Canaanite woman. 
she uh, is from Jericho. Uh, the Bible says she's also a, a prostitute. Um, she hides two Israeli spies before the invasion and eventually uh, becomes a follower of, of Yahweh. Now the third uh, woman is Ruth. She's from Moab. Uh, Moab was a despised race. It was uh, descendants from Lot who committed incest and it was uh, seen as an inferior people. She's a refugee in a time of famine. She has no social status, but she falls in love with the God of Israel, follows her mother-in-law Naomi back to Israel, marries Boaz. And this uh, refugee from a despised race becomes one of the great grandmas of Jesus. The fourth woman Matthew includes is uh, Bathsheba. But Matthew can't quite say it. He says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I I guess it was still seen as so scandalous that um, he couldn't even say that. And he's ruffling feathers all over the place here. She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that's another race, another ethnic group. And she is uh, married to uh, a soldier in David's army. And you may know the story. Uh, David sees her bathing one day, summons her to himself. Uh, has sex with her, she conceives, he uh, arranges for her husband to be murdered, she becomes a widow, he brings her in, they lose their first child, and then the second child from that liaison is Solomon, another great, great grandfather of Jesus. So, Matthew includes four matriarchs in the family tree of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Not Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. And he does it on purpose. He knows exactly what he is doing. And I think he's preaching the gospel. And one of the ways we could put it, I think, is that this is Jesus' family that he has come to invite the world into. And in this genealogy, he is saying something about this family, this new community of the people of God, about this gospel-generated community. And I think he's saying a couple things that you can think about as you ponder this, as we kind of just introduce the study tonight. The first thing I think he's saying is that women are going to be full partners in this new community. And again, we may be used to this text, we may have heard this sermon before, uh, but it would be hard for us to appreciate how scandalous this was in the first century to include four women in Jesus' family tree. Matthew is signaling that women will be equal members of the new community. And, And if we had time... Uh, we, we could see how this is one of Matthew's themes in the gospel over and over again. He is elevating the role of women. Uh, for example, at the resurrection, uh, the women are the last at the cross, the first at the tomb, the first to preach, the first gospel message preached in Matthew after the resurrection is by women. And we can go on and on and on and on. So this is one of the things that, that I think Matthew is trying to signal here is that women are to have an equal role in the new community. It's, it's Matthew's versions of Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Now, the, the second observation I'd make, the second lesson I think Matthew wants us to, to see here as we look at the family of Jesus, is that the new community is to have no divisions in it. Uh, the, the ancient world was like ours. It was just, just sliced and, and chopped up into all these different ethnic groups that just hated each other. And as far as I can tell, that hadn't changed a lot in uh, thousands of years. There's really a lot of racial reconciliation going on in, in this passage. Um, there are all sorts of races are a part of Jesus' family. This would have been like standing up in a Baptist church in Birmingham in 1950 and saying, do you realize, folks, that Jesus' ancestors were a two blacks, a Latino, and a Hindu from New Delhi? I mean, these would have been, no, can't be. Now, we can talk a little bit about that, but frankly, I don't have that much to say about the racial reconciliation piece uh, a couple wonderful young folks came to me a few weeks ago, and they were having a meeting with a lot of different leaders from the city on last Friday night. It was wonderful. It's called The Gathering. I really loved it. And there's this beautiful city movement that's coming up. And, and they said, could you talk, could you share a story about racial reconciliation? Because we, we know you meet with, a, with, a, with an African-American pastor every month, and you've been, doing, you've been friends with him for 20 years. And, and, and I... I I said, I love your passion. I'll be at the meeting. I want to support you, but I, I'm not going to talk about racial reconciliation. I said, I think we're, the, the, the more I'm walking this out, the more racially divided I feel our city is. <laughs> I'm not ready to tell a story about how good that we're doing, but I'll be there. I don't know the answer to this. I, I think we, we ought to be sensitive to it and be aware of it. But one of the things that, that I, I think also comes from this, this principle is that any division is, is wrong in the body of Christ. Ephesians 2 talks about Christ came down to break the barriers between all sorts of divisions. And I think we're at least sensitive to the racial division, and I think most of us would say, you know, it's not right. Uh, racism is not right. We should be together. Black and white should be together. We, we get that. I think we're less aware of the more subtle uh, isms that we we bring into our hearts and our minds, the more subtle ways that we cut one another off from each other, the more subtle ways that we judge each other, the more subtle ways that we uh, decide that I could never really uh, be friends with them, or they'd never understand me, which sometimes translates, I don't really like them and don't want to be around them. And, and wherever you are in life, there's your own little uh, hierarchy of, of, uh, of walls. Uh, I was talking to this with a young mother recently. She said, oh, no, I know, I know. Uh, breastfeeding is it for me. Uh, and I, I didn't take a note. I don't remember the whole answer, but it was something about how long you breastfed. And, and there, there was some tension over those who did it for a certain period and, and those who didn't. Uh, and then there was a sense of some were doing it right, some were doing it wrong, and it was creating tension. Uh, someone else said, you know, what... what what I've picked up in, in our community sometime is this narrative that goes something like this. The poor are good. The wealthy are bad. The wealthy hurt the poor. So it's okay to be against the wealthy. 
No, there are certain gospel themes that emerge in that, right? I mean, the Bible does talk about oppression and the abuse of power and a, and a bias towards the poor and all that. But the Bible never calls us to dislike people with resources or to judge them. I hear it sometimes in uh, the way we talk about the suburbs and Christians that live in the suburbs. Uh, it's kind of like we're down here and we're more just and they're out there and they're not. So you just might think, what does this look like in, in your own heart? Um, who, who is, who is the, the them that you don't like? Could be young people. Could be older people. Could be good-looking people. Could be heavy people. Uh, there's just something bent in our hearts that creates these us-them categories and splits apart community. And so I think Matthew's saying, no, this is something Jesus has come to overturn. The last observation that I think we can make from this is grace abounds in the new community. I mean, when, when, when Matthew's telling his readers, he's bringing up, for any reader that knew the Old Testament story, he's bringing up all this baggage, all these bad memories, all this darkness. Uh, a grandpa Judah sexually abusing his son's wife. Uh, Rahab the prostitute and whatever that meant. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how she got into that and all that, but that's a, a, a painful story. Uh, we're reminded of Lot's incest with his daughters. We're reminded of a pretty young wife being seduced by the most powerful man in the kingdom and then him killing her husband. I mean, these are not highlight reels here. Uh, And yet, through adultery, incest, murder, evil, the Messiah comes. Wow! That is hopeful. That means there's hope for me and for you. Because I think we we have this kind of idea that we can be disqualified from playing a significant role in the kingdom of God because of what we've done, because of what we don't have or what we do have or the baggage that we carry, uh, because we're not educated enough or we don't know the Bible enough or we're not bold enough or... Or, or, or wealthy enough, or poor enough, or whatever it is. We, we think these things disqualify God from using us. Look, beloved, God uses adultery, incest, sodomy to bring about the birth of the Messiah. That's the gospel. It's all grace. It's all grace. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I uh, often feel... I just don't think I have what it takes to, to really do this well. Often feel that way. I've been working on this little story. Um, hopefully it'll run next Saturday. I don't know, for the new Sentinel on, on gangs, because we've been running into a little bit with, our, with some of our folks and some of the kids in the swim team have been running on it, so I've been doing a little research on it, been talking to police and different folks and this wonderful pastor, Daryl Arnold, over at Overcoming Believers Church. And, and uh, it's been interesting as I've pressed into that side of our 
community. I've heard stories that I'd never heard before. I've learned things that I didn't know before. Um, and, I, and I found myself uh, struggling with, with fear. And, uh, you know, yeah, don't need to say any more than that. Just irrational uh, fear. Both for the kids, for those of you that live in the neighborhoods, for, uh, um, and for myself. Because sometimes I drive the kids home in the summer at 10, 10.30 at night, and it's a different world. And, and this lovely person sat down and said, would you share about racial reconciliation, all the good things that are, are going on in the city? I had not had a good day. I was feeling kind of discouraged. I was in an Eeyore mood. I warned you about and pray that I repent of that and get out of that. And, and, and I said, I shouldn't have said it, but I said it. I wish I hadn't said it. But what I said was, I said, my goal this summer is that we all survive and nobody gets shot. Now, that is way too dramatic, right? I mean, it's not, it's not Beirut down there. But it was what I was feeling. And you know what? I still kind of feel that way. And she looked at me. She, was very, she said, wow, I, Pastor Doug, I just never heard a pastor say that. <laughs> you know, I think I was just uh, crushing <laughs> her vision about what a godly man would, would say. And I... And I <laughs> I don't think that is what a godly man would say. And I, I just, I was, I was thinking about it. I was just thinking, Carl, you are such a coward. You are such a coward. How on earth is God going to use you to build the kingdom? And I don't know what it is for you. I mean, we all have a flaw. We all have got something that we just think, how can how, how could God use me when, when I'm addicted to pornography? I'm not, by the way. Uh, when, I, when I'm addicted to pornography. Or how could God use me when I, my kid won't talk to me? How could God use me when I, I'm depressed all winter? How, how could God use me when I'm so obsessed with my weight? Well, I think the point of this is that's the point. <laughs> the point is uh, God works through yuckiness to get the job done. And, okay, I qualify for that. (laughs) I have the credentials to get that done. Now, I'll end with this. We were sitting over there um, with with Pastor Arnold on Friday. And most of my column is about him. And I was with him Friday morning in his office and it was very interesting because I had him read the column and check facts, and I said, one of the things I want you to show me is, is, is anything that is racist that I put in here that I didn't want to put. And he, he showed me two places where I had phrased things that were, would have been offensive to his community, and I, I hadn't realized it, which tells you something about how far I have to go with all this. Well, and we were talking about... Gang problems in our inner city, and, and, and he'd pulled out this uh, iPhone, and he'd flipped to one of the pictures, and he had a picture of nine little kids. They were all about seven years old, and they were all stacking gang signs. Nine kids in somebody's apartment stacking gang signs. And we were, we were, we'd prayed a little bit, and we are both kind of discouraged, and he says, but let me show this. Let me show you this. And he goes back to his office, and he grabs what looks to me like a blue bandana. And, uh, and, he, and he brings it out, and he says, what is this? I said, uh, a blue bandana. <laughs> you know? 
And he says, no, it's a flag that marks a gang member. And he said, last week, now there's 900 people in this guy's church. They meet in Fifth Avenue Baptist, one pastor, by the way, 900 people. He says, last week, a member of the Gangster Disciples put his flag in the offering plate. And he walked up to me after service and he said, I'm done. I'm following Jesus now. That's the gospel. Let's pray.